Everybody back to the Palace of Glittering Delight. Slightly unusual episode this time in that I have no notes. This is completely off the cuff, apart from my little book that has my list of my rankings for the top Marvel Cinematic Universe movies and the order that I enjoy them the most. Now, this has been something that's been running around on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and and all that social media bullshit um, quite recently. Uh, And I decided to do it as a show simply because I was watching through them all on the MCU rewatch once a week, as has been the thing in the lead up to Infinity War. Now, as I record this, Infinity War comes out here tomorrow. Well, technically Thursday. Tomorrow night, midnight, 01 there are going to be screenings of the Avengers Infinity War. And to say that uh, expectations for this movie are high would be a severe understatement. They are as high as that bloke who sung Because I Got High. Um, People are really looking forward to it. I'm one of them. Before I get into the the list of the order, I do want to say that I, I still do like manual written notes for certain things not for everything but for certain things and this is my book my little notebook my little marvel comics notebook that um has the order that i've written them down what i think one through through 18 because i was like i haven't seen infinity war yet so i don't know where it's going to chart it has more scribbled graphite on it than anything else i think i've ever written the order of these things as I went through the rewatch, just kept changing radically. Um, And, you know, it's a completely different list from what it would have been if I'd just picked my favourite films just off memory. Going through the rewatch of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, there are are two things that, that stand out. One, simply just the level of quality going through this thing from top to bottom even though these are going to be in order, because that's the nature of the beast, they haven't done a film that is utterly shit. They haven't done a film that is totally divisive in the way that The Last Jedi has uh, has been, sorry, but they haven't done a film either that has been utterly, utterly bad. And even the worst of these movies, the one I consider to be subpar to everybody else if they were making films of the quality of the last film on this list in say 1990 1992 we'd have been made up we'd have been delighted with that film if it had come out in 1990 now we've just got an embarrassment of riches with regards to the marvel cinematic universe and the films that have been pumped out under its umbrella i don't think it's unfair to say that for me personally, the Marvel Cinematic Universe has more breadth, width, depth than anything DC's done. Yes, including Wonder Woman, sorry. Um, anything that Fox has done. You know, as far as I'm concerned, they've made one good X-Men movie, and that was called Days of Future Past. Uh, no, not oh God, no, not Days of Future Past. I fucking hated that film. And it was X-Men First Class. They've made 
other X-Men spin-offs that were quite good. Logan was very good. Deadpool was entertaining in its own way. But I don't consider them part of the core X-Men movie franchise. They are spin-offs. That's not a good hit rate. I'm sorry. Of the 19 movies that Marvel have released since Iron Man first came out, none of them have sucked. All of them have been, at the very least, an entertaining and diverting two hours in the cinema. And sometimes that's what you want. But each of the movies, each and every one of them, even the ones at the bottom of the list, have something that elevates them above simple popcorn material. Which is why director James Cameron's recent criticism of adenoidal men with no families destroying towns... I'm I'm wondering, did he watch the Marvel as he watched the Marvel movies? Because that doesn't seem like a description of any of the Marvel movies I saw. Nothing, you know, Tony Stark isn't an idol, even though he's destroyed a couple of small towns. Thor has a family. Um, and destroying cities, I'm trying to think, there's only really the Avengers that a city is destroyed. Maybe Sokovia, small town in New Mexico in Thor. That's pretty much it. So... I, I, I thought James Cameron was talking out of his arse, quite frankly. But hey, Avatar 2, 3, 4 and 5 are on the way, and I know that I can't wait for them. They'll be during and different, I'm sure. Maybe they won't send me to sleep in the way Avatar did. Anyway, so let's get on with ranking these things, should we? Coming in uh, in last place, this was an easy one. The, the last place on this list is very was a very, very simple one. Everything else moved around, changed, would move up, would move down, based upon how I felt upon the rewatch or whatever. But the last place was the last place going in, and it was the last place coming out. And the reason for that is it's probably your last place as well. This isn't a during choice for last place. This isn't going to be a controversial decision. You're not all going to be banging down on my Twitter feed and demanding that I'm fired from my job for this infraction. Last on the list is Thor The Dark World. By quite considerable margin, Thor The Dark World is the worst of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I mean, with the caveat, like I just said, that if this film had been released in 1990, we'd have been falling all over ourselves to love it. But in relation to the other movies on this list, it is a considerable step down. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that. One, I don't know that they've ever quite known what to do with Thor other than to make him comedy relief. Now, some of that comes from the fact that Chris Hemsworth, who portrays the mighty um, Lord of Thunder, is a very, very good comedic actor. He's very good at undercutting himself. He's very good at sending himself up. And obviously, they've decided to play into that. I kind of think that does the character a little bit of a disservice overall. And we may get into that further when we discuss Thor Ragnarok. But the second Thor movie is probably the only Marvel movie for me that kind of just lives there. It doesn't really offer anything that is carried over into the other movies. Its villain, Christopher Eccleston, is just there. He doesn't really have any considerable motivation. You know, can, can compare him, sorry, to the villain of Civil War or the villain of the Avengers, Loki, or Ultron, or even to Ultron, or Justin Hammer. All of these are good, solid villains with good motivations. Chris Heckleston has whined constantly uh, of late in interviews about how he was told, 
you know there would be more backstory to the character and how the would the makeup wouldn't be as long he's just bitched and whined basically but understandably so really because his part ends up being nothing he's ended up being a nothing villain in in a rather forgotten part of the movie now that's not to say that thor the dark world does not have moments it does it has quite a lot of entertaining moments if this film is on tv i'll leave it on um it's not one i'd probably dig off the dvd blu-ray shelf every off very often but on television flicking I'll leave it there. And that's because it is fun. There is a lot of funny moments in, Dar- in Thor The Dark World. My personal favourite in it is the Darcy, Jane Foster and whoever the hell Chris O'Dowd was playing three-way date, which I think crackles with rom-com energy and dialogue. Uh, it's well known that there's a couple of these movies in between The Avengers and Age of Ultra that uh, Joss Whedon did an uncredited rewrite on. I think Thor The Dark World is definitely one of them. I definitely think that scene in particular is very much a Whedon scene. The dialogue is sparkly and bouncy. It's well played by Kat Dennings and Natalie Portman and um, and Chris O'Dowd. And it's a lovely little moment. Like, again, Darcy has Mew Mew. It's, that's a funny gag, calling Mjolnir Mew Mew's funny joke. Um, Natalie Portman's largely wasted. And, you know, the fact that she's deeply unsatisfied with her role and has promptly not been in any of the other movies... I think shows, I mean, she's fine in the first one, she's not really that good in the second one, she doesn't really have a lot to do, and ultimately, like I say, it just sits there, doesn't really do anything, doesn't really go anywhere, doesn't really matter in the overall scheme of thing. it is very much a film that you could skip over in the cinematic rewatch, and other than, you know, Loki has now taken on the throne and Frigga's dead, there's nothing really else that you you need to you need to know and that's recapped at the beginning of ragnarok so okay so that's coming in at number 19 number 18 sorry i mean probably still will be number 19 when infinity war comes out uh and that's thor the dark world coming in at number 17 now i need to issue another caveat here every single one of these movies now up to and including number 10 could have been 10th if I weren't ordering in this position, these would all be 10th. There is a gap, a significant gap, between my next film on the list and Thor The Dark World. Like I say, Thor The Dark World is, by some considerable margin, the worst of the Marvel movies. Coming in at number 17 is Iron Man 2. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. A lot of people have a problem with Iron Man 2, Andrew. This is, again, not a controversial choice. I'm not one of those people. I think Iron Man 2 is a lot of fun. I really do. I think there's an awful lot to enjoy in Iron Man 2. I think there's some wonderful moments in Iron Man 2. I think the thing about Iron Man 2 that lets it down, and if you know me at all, you know what this is going to be, and that's Whiplash and the actor who portrays him, Mickey Rourke. I have never liked Mickey Rourke, ever, in anything. Um, I don't know why that is. I find him quite hard work as an actor i don't find him particularly magnetic or engaging i think he's incredibly pretentious type of actor off screen the interviews that he gave before iron man 2 where he talked about how marvel had shafted him by cutting out all of his wonderful character work that he did um put me off and iron man 2 is still the only one of the Marvel movies that I did not see in the cinema. And I attribute that to the fact that Mickey Rourke's in it. I just find him to be a bland, uninteresting, waste of space actor. And it's a shame, because Justin Hammer, 
who is ostensibly the real villain in this movie, is absolutely fantastic. Any time that Justin Hammer is on screen, as played by Sam Rockwell, who's a brilliant actor, the film lightens up. Because what they're attempting to do here, and what they will attempt to do again in Iron Man 3, which is the only real weak point about Iron Man 3, but again, we'll get there, is to give us the player-on-the-other-side version of Tony Stark. And Justin Hammer is so desperate to be Tony Stark. He dresses like Tony. He tries to act like Tony. But he's not Tony. And he knows he's not Tony. And that's just some sublime character work. And if they'd kept Justin Hammer as the main villain of the film, I think it would have been a great improvement. Perhaps reducing Whiplash down to just being a lackey that Justin Hammer created may have worked better. Because Sam Rockwell deserves much better than being second fiddle to Mickey Rock. Other than that, though, there's a lot to enjoy in Iron Man 2. But Mickey Rock's the main bad guy. And I don't like that actor. So kind of puts a dampener on the overall for me. Coming at number 16, Doctor Strange. Again, there's nothing, strictly speaking, wrong with Doctor Strange. It is a solid, entertaining, well-put-together Marvel movie. It very much attempts to address the criticisms that have been levelled at the Marvel movies that they all end in exactly the same way. It also seemed to be cocking a snoot somewhat at Man of Steel with its city-destroying ending. Doctor Strange ends with cities being rebuilt which seems like a nice subversion of the trope. The thing with Doctor Strange, for me, is, first of all, Benedict Cumberbatch's accent is appalling. I don't know what it is that his American accent just does not sound right to me. Now, I freely admit it could just be me. Uh, I never, ever bought Hugh Laurie's American accent. But apparently, there are a number of people out there who have only ever seen him in-house who thought that he was an American. So it's entirely possible that me knowing Benedict Cumberbatch is not an American has possibly impacted on how I interpret his performance in that film and his accent. My personal thinking on accents in movies is, if you don't have to saddle your character or your actor with an accent, then don't do it. If it's not an intrinsic part of the character that they be a specific nationality, then why bother? And there is nothing written in the Marvel comic books, as far as I remember, and I have only read the Steve Ditko stuff and the Roger Stern, Marshall Rogers stuff, but there is nothing I recall in the America that means he in the America in the comic book that means he has to be an American. He could have been a British surgeon who's risen to the top of his game, become ultra ultra wealthy, ultra in demand, and therefore has moved to America because that's where the money is. And you're instantly not saddling Cumberbatch with an accent that, let's be honest, he didn't really pull off. Now, that alone isn't enough to relegate this film to this this low point, because there is, again, an awful lot to enjoy about Doctor Strange. Tilda Swinton is magnificent as the Ancient One. Again, something that had all the rabid fanboys crowing that the Ancient One was a man. Tilda Swinton's great in the role. Don't care that they gender swapped her. Got no issues with it. Benedict Wong is absolutely magnificent in the role of um, Wong. Hmm. I can see how that may have been confusing on set, having a Benedict Cumberbatch and a Benedict Wong and a Wong. But at least it wasn't a Wang, which could have been bad. 
Uh, all, all of that stuff is great. I think Mads Mikkelsen is again wasted as the bad guy. Now, Mads Mikkelsen's a brilliant actor. Unlike Mickey Rourke, I really like Mads Mikkelsen. He was great in Hannibal. He was great as Le Chiffre in Casino Royale. He's, he's great in everything I've ever seen him in. But again, in this one, the villain just comes across as a little bit feeble. And if there is one criticism of the Marvel movies that I do tend to agree with, it is that the villains aren't all that they could be. And in Doctor Strange here, that is very much the case. Again, it's not that Doctor Strange is not fun. It is. It has moments. It's entertaining in all the right ways. But for me, I didn't think it was weird enough for a Doctor Strange movie. Although I did like the final confrontation with Dormammu, where essentially they're just trapped in a permanent loop where Doctor, until Doctor Strange gets what he wants. I did enjoy Doctor Strange's cameo in Thor Ragnarok a little bit more than I actually enjoyed his own movie. And I'm hoping that should Doctor Strange get a sequel, they'll be able to embrace the wacky a little bit more. And that his appearance in the upcoming Infinity War will also be as entertaining as he was in Ragnarok. Coming in at number 15. I feel like the top of the pops music should be playing here. Number 15 is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is all the way down this list and for one reason and one reason only. I lost interest in the boss fight at the end. That's it. And if the film doesn't keep me interested for the full duration of the running time, then something's wrong. And Guardians didn't. Again, there's nothing wrong with Guardians 2. There's a lot to love in Guardians 2. You know, the the entire through line of all of the characters having familial issues that they've overcome by finding their own family in each other. That's all absolutely beautiful stuff. Incredibly well played in a lot of places. Uh, the movie deserves all the credit in the world for making you feel something for a CG tree and a CG raccoon. All the credit in the world for that. Uh, Gamora and Nebula have a wonderful little story arc running through this particular film, which I very much enjoyed. I thought those two actresses, Karen Gillan and Zoe Zeldana, did an excellent job with the material that they were given. And again, there is nothing wrong with the material that they are given. But for the first time watching a Marvel movie, I felt that Guardians of the Galaxy could have been trimmed by a good 10 minutes somewhere along the line. But that's not to say it isn't enjoyable, because it is. And it's it manages to tug at the heartstrings in the best way that these movies do. When Ego confesses that he killed Peter Quill's mum, that's just such a, a gut-wrenching moment that these kinds of movies aren't well known for even though we know as fans that they've managed to pull this off an awful lot more than they're given credit for by sniffy film critics or people like james cameron but the moment where that happens and peter just loses his shit with him is is one of the best moments in the film you know the zadu hassan for our stuff is is really funny there's a lot to love in it. I, I particularly like the gold people, whose name I don't remember. I hope that they come back in the third one. I hope that they bring, bring Ben Browder back. It was lovely to see John Crichton there, uh, trapped off in far-off space. That was that was lovely. The score was great. The incidental music, the, the soundtrack score with all the music, all that was great. I'm saying that it was a really great film. So why is it so far down on the list? Well, somebody has to be, is the point. And like I said, the final 
the final act lost me in the sense that just I got just a little bit bored with it in the same way that I got bored in the final act of, of Wonder Woman. It's, and that ultimately brings the, the films down a little bit. Coming in at number 14, Ant-Man. Now, Ant-Man is one of those films that seems to be, when discussing the MCU, it's one of those movies that is largely overlooked and forgotten. A lot of people don't like Ant-Man. I'm not one of them. I think Ant-Man is a really solid entertaining movie in and of itself irrespective of it being a marvel movie because ant-man is one of those films where the connective tissue in ant-man isn't that great so you can just watch ant-man having not seen any of the others and it doesn't really matter all of the actors are good michael douglas is great in it paul rudd is especially good but paul rudd is one of those just immediately charismatic and, and entertaining actors in everything that he's ever been in the actual through thread of the story the father-daughter relationship is where this one really scores for me because that's not something that is explored a great deal in movies of this kind and it's a very important relationship it's a very different relationship to that which you have with a son and it's something that i think i liked being seen in a mainstream movie because everything that paul rudd's character does in this film is for his daughter, essentially. It's to build up his relationship with her again. It's to recover whatever time he's lost with her. It's a great, great film for that. It's also exceptionally funny. You know, Lewis's recaps, for want of a better word, and the way that they're put together is exceptionally funny and entertaining. And I do wonder... I mean, I don't know that we'll ever find out, but I do wonder exactly what was the problem that Edgar Wright was let go or decided to leave or mutually agreed to walk away um, from Ant-Man. But they let Taika Waititi make Thor Ragnarok. And it's like, what, what was the disconnect there? What exactly did Edgar Wright want to do that Kevin Feige went, oh, that's too far out there. But Taika Waititi was just like, yeah, do what you want. I don't I don't understand that. Because I can't imagine that Edgar Wright would have delivered a much more different movie than the one we got. But I'm, I'm solidly in the camp of liking Ant-Man. I think it's a very entertaining movie. Coming in at number 13, it's Thor. Thor is, again, a remarkable achievement. I am honestly of the opinion that if Marvel had cocked this one up, then the cinematic universe would not have gone on to embrace the wacky in the way that we've had Guardians of the Galaxy. I think Guardians of the Galaxy immediately follows the fact that they were able to get away with doing something as off the wall as Thor. Because if you look at the pantheon of Marvel heroes, arguably the most difficult to pull off would be Thor and Asgard and Odin and all of that stuff. It, it's beautiful, bombastic, typically Jack Kirby comic books of the highest order that would be very, very difficult to pull off on film. And all credit to Ken Branagh and the Marvel team, they did it. They pulled it off. They made Asgard seem like a real place, populated by real people. With Thor, they actually came up with the first genuinely great villain of the Marvel Universe, although I have a soft spot for the Red Skull, but we'll get to that later. In Tom Hiddleston's Loki, they found a star in the making in Chris Hemsworth as the Mighty Thor, although I don't know how much he's been able to parlay that 
into other roles. And that's something I'm very interested in, in seeing. A lot of people have been speculating. Lots of deaths are coming up in Infinity War. People's contracts are up. I'm putting it out there right now. Nobody of import will die in Infinity War. I don't think they'll kill Cap. I don't think they'll kill Bruce Banner. I don't think they'll kill Thor. I don't think they'll kill Tony Stark. Because none of them, including Robert Downey Jr., have been able to parlay their Marvel success into other movies. Yes, Downey Jr.'s had Sherlock, which was a moderate success, but it doesn't seem like they're in a rush to make a third one. But what else has Chris Hemsworth done that has broken box office records? He's done a couple of good films. I very much enjoyed Rush, which he made with um, Daniel Bruhl, who is the bad guy in Civil War. We'll get to him later. But he's not been able to turn that into a career in and of itself for him. He, therefore, would be foolish to not return to play Thor because it's a nice paycheck for him and it's a big box office hit that would enable him to do other movies, perhaps lower budget, low interest ones. So I'm going I'm going out there right now. They're not going to kill off anybody of that status. That being said, Thor was a star-making performance for him. Prior to that, he was what? Thanks, Cat. He was Captain Kirk's dad in Star Trek. So, And he finally got a starship again, in, in Thor Ragnarok. But in, in every other respect, Thor is a supremely entertaining movie. Natalie Portman doesn't seem to be phoning it in in that one. Jane Foster is a very interesting character, rewritten from the comics very interestingly, in my opinion. Stellan Starsgard is wonderful. Kat Denning, supremely entertaining. Um, again, Anthony Hopkins isn't phoning it in either, as as um, as Odin. Whereas, you know, in, in perhaps in the other movies, he's not perhaps as invested as he could be. And overall, the, the, the tale of the god who falls to earth and through his own hubris has to find a way back from that and accept some humility. Um, but not too much humility because he's thought is a great story. Some great visuals. Asgard is very well realised. The um, the executioner is very well realised. The fight in the small New Mexico town is wonderful. Uh, nice cameo appearance from Hawkeye, which I believe I didn't know about going into this. Um, absolutely great stuff. Oh, one thing I didn't mention about Iron Man 2, wasn't it? Black Widow. Again, yeah, Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow was absolutely brilliant in that. As Hawkeye, who I love. I don't get the hate for Hawkeye. I think Hawkeye's brilliantly fun. Every time he's been in it, I I want Black Widow Hawkeye movie, not just Black Widow. I think Hawkeye would be brilliant in that. So his cameo appearance was great. Lovely role for Coulson, who starts to come into his own, particularly in, in Thor. And it's just a, a supremely entertaining movie. Very good score on that one as well. The reason all of these are at joint 10th is only because in comparison to my top 10 list, they're a little bit further down. That's all it is. They're all good. Which means that number 12 is Thor Ragnarok. I have a conflicted um, relationship with, with Thor Ragnarok. Like I mentioned earlier on, Thor Ragnarok very much feels to me what happens if you give an auteur director too much control. And what you end up with is a movie that... It's not that it didn't take itself seriously when it needed to, because it did. But there are moments in that film where it undercuts itself because of the humour. Like the moment where Bruce Banner leaps out of the ship. Him falling to the floor and breaking every bone in his body, is that shouldn't be there. That's not the right time for that moment. It should have cut that and cut straight to the Hulk just grabbing Fenris 
and that would have been a crowd-pleasing moment rather than undercutting it with a bad joke. And there are a couple of other instances of that throughout the film, particularly in the climax. I didn't think the Meek gag of, oh, Meek's dead. I didn't think that was particularly well-timed. I didn't think Cog saying, well, his guard was built on good foundations, and then just disappearing into the sea, and but the foundations are gone. That, again, undercuts essentially what's just happened to Asgard. I mean, there are other places where the humour works magnificently. The Doug gag. Always another Doug. This is great. So it's not that I think Korg is completely terrible. It's just that I think a couple of those gags towards the end of the film undercut the movie. I also, really, looking back on it this time, did not appreciate the way Taika Waititi just basically wraps up everything that happened in the previous two Thor movies in the first 20 minutes so he can get on with the film that he wants to make. Just get all that shit out of the way. Because there was some really interesting stuff, though, that it would have been nice to see developed that they just brush under the carpet. And I do wonder how much of that came from the fact that they announced the title was Thor Ragnarok. And then they have a movie where Ragnarok itself is of secondary importance to the actual story that's going on. My other problem with Thor Ragnarok is completely independent. This This is a me problem, not a problem with the film as it's made. My problem with it is they've they've just pissed all over being able to do World War Hulk properly. Korg and Meek in the World War Hulk comic books are brilliant characters, not just comic relief, which is what they are in this movie. And I think it's a shame that we only got to see a little bit of the Hulk as the green scar and the fact that the Hulk has found peace and happiness. But what does that mean to Banner? There's a lot to explore there, but because this isn't the Hulk's movie... We don't, we don't get any of that. And Thor, who has always had an undercurrent of humour to him, let's not forget that, but Thor just turned into a smirking frat boy in places in this film. The, is it though? Movie, it, it's funny, but it kind of undercuts the character of Thor. That being said, this is a supremely entertaining film. Thor Ragnarok is, is great on a pure entertainment level, going through it. My problems with it are probably my problems with it and nobody else's. It is funny. It is magnificently entertaining. It looks gorgeous. Very colourful in comparison to other superhero movies from from other places that are, you know, darker than dark. It's nice to see a nice, colourful movie. Jeff Goldblum, supremely entertaining in everything he does. Numerous places in this film where the actors actually visibly crack up. At the lines, but Jeff Goldblum cracks up when um, he asks um, his his little guard, his little woman guard. He asks her a question: "What what does that smell like?" And she says, "Burnt toast." Uh, he cracks up at that, and I'm, I'm presuming that was <clears throat> not part of the script, but it it works on that level. The score to Thor Ragnarok, although sounding more like a Guardians of the Galaxy score, is very entertaining. So all of it does come together, all of it does entertain, all of it is brilliantly realised, looks magnificent. I think perhaps, maybe, somebody should have took Taika Waititi by the hand in certain places and said, "Mm, let's cut that out and just see how it went. Coming at number 11, Critical Darling, The Black Panther. Now, the reason this is so far down the list is twofold. One, I haven't seen it again. Obviously, it's not out on Blu-ray. 
uh, at the time that I'm recording this before Infinity War comes out. So I have only seen this once. So I have only got my cinematic experience to talk about. It is still in cinemas, which just shows you how well this movie has done. So, you know, I don't have a problem with the film in and of itself. It's that I've not been able to give it a rewatch to fairly judge it. However... The reason that I don't think it would change very much, it would still be in the bottom half of my top 10 were I to watch it again, I imagine. And that's for the one very good reason. The script itself to this movie is as predictable as hell. There are no beats in this film that are a surprise or take the audience unawares like there are in other Marvel movies. Despite people complaining they're all the same, there are moments, scenes bits, pieces, dialogues, whatever, in the other films that are a bit, oh, didn't see that coming. Not so in Black Panther. The beats of the movie are laid out from the first five minutes of the film, and you know exactly where that film is going to go. It doesn't offer any surprises in terms of its script. Where it does score, however, is in everything else. So we'll turn a blind eye to the fact that the script is a little bit weak, because everything else works just so magnificently. The world building of Wakanda is just wonderfully done. The characters that surround T'Challa are all magnificent. Absolutely wonderful. Like everybody else, we all fell in love with his sister, um, Suri. She was just absolutely brilliant. Letitia Wright was great in this film. Just as she's great in her episode of Black Mirror. Which I urge you to check out if you haven't seen it. In fact, just watch all of Black Mirror because it's great. Et Denai Greur from um, The Walking Dead um, seems to be revelling in the fact that she's in a film where she's allowed to smile and not wear the same stinky clothes. <clears throat> the James Bond scene where Churi is his cue to T'Challa's James Bond is just absolutely magnificent. Followed up by the casino scene where we see Martin Freeman's character playing Felix Leiter. And it's just, next time, let's embrace that more. Let's do T'Challa as a Bond movie next time. I think that would be absolutely fantastic. Um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe once again redeems another human torch with an excellent performance from Michael B. Jordan. Carrying on from that hit streak from Creed. He's brilliant in Creed. He's brilliant in this. He's the best kind of villain in that he has an actual point that you can relate to and understand and actually go... He's got a point, hasn't he? Just how he's going about it is completely and utterly wrong. The weak link for me is T'Challa himself. Chadwick Boseman doesn't imbue T'Challa with anything other than regality and honour and dignity. All that's great, but I think perhaps we need to see that he's not quite as stiff in a future film as he was in this one. But everybody else, everything else about Black Panther is absolutely brilliant and perfect. And I realise that it's a moment in time... And it's hopefully going to change the landscape of these kind of movies. And I, I think it deserves to do so. Because it is a great movie. My problem with it, as I said, is purely on a script level. Coming in at number 10, something I don't have a problem with a script level, is The Guardians of the Galaxy. The big surprise of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I think, by a wide margin. No one was expecting anything of Guardians of the Galaxy. Even hardcore comic nerds like me... When you said Guardians of the Galaxy to me, I was like, who the fuck are they? You know, that's how unimportant the Guardians of the Galaxy were. Not only to Marvel as a comic book concept, but to the cinematic universe general. Nobody was clamouring for a Guardians of the Galaxy movie. 
And that's why it worked. Guardians of the Galaxy comes on like gangbusters. It's probably the first balls-out, thoroughly enjoyable Star Wars movie we've had in years. Because that's what it felt like to me. It felt like a, a let's embrace the wacky, the weird, the aliens, the alien landscapes, other planets, weird concepts. Let's embrace all of that stuff that we loved about Star Wars and put it into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You know, again, it made a star out of Chris Pratt. Chris Pratt, who seems to be smart enough to say, no, no, I'm here until they throw me out the door. Chris Pratt knows he's onto a good thing with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But everybody was a surprise in this. You know, Bradley Cooper as, as Rocket. I was like, Bradley Cooper? But no, he's absolutely brilliant. Dave Bautista is absolutely magnificent as Drax. Groot steals every single scene that he's in. Um, Nebula and Gamora, the, the luminescent Karen Gillan and Zoe Zeldana, both absolutely fantastic in this film. All the supporting characters are absolutely great in it. Guy from The Walking Dead, whose name I can't remember, who's in Mallrats. Rucker, Mike Rucker, he's brilliant in this film. Sean Gunn, director, writer, James Gunn's brother, best known for being in The Gilmore Girls, is also brilliant in this. And it's one of the places where Guardians Volume 2 does score in that it takes all the characters and advances the stories from where they are here. And it sets up a lot of stuff that could be used later on. Guardians of the Galaxy is much more important in the overall scheme of things than it seemed at the time that it came out and when you first watched it at the cinema. And that was, I think, the big surprise for me. And that elevated it in my eyes in this movie. And it's only so down it's only so far down the list at number 10 because everything else is of just such a high quality. But in any other list, Guardians would be number one. Because it's just such a fantastic, entertaining movie that you can put on and just breeze through. But it also has heart and emotion, real emotion behind it, that James Gunn is exceptionally good at drawing out amidst the ridiculous. And Gunn is also one of the better writers in the Marvel Universe of balancing the humour with the heart. You know, there are no gags in Guardians of the Galaxy that feel as forced or undercutting the drama as Thor Ragnarok. And I think I, think I would like James Gunn to, to get given an opportunity to perhaps do something in the Marvel Universe that isn't Guardians and see what else that he can do within that, that playing field. But if we only get Guardians of the Galaxy movies off him, and he has signed up for the third one, then longer may he continue to do as good a job with them as he has been doing. Coming in at number nine... The one that started it all. I am Iron Man. Again, it's quite easy to dismiss Iron Man now when you can look at how far the universe has come since Iron Man debuted a little over 10 years ago, as I recall. And it's hard to imagine that in 10 years, Marvel have built this entire empire, this cinematic universe, from the seeds that they planted in Iron Man. Um... That really is an example of taking something that could have just tanked immeasurably, um, very easily have tanked. Uh, John Favreau bringing his A-game, but really risking it all on the roll of the dice that was Robert Downey Jr., lest we forget, a huge risk at the time because of his past problems with drinking alcohol. Um, 
it was a story where they they literally translated the comic book origin, just updating it to the Middle East instead of Vietnam. It's a very faithful adaptation of the comic book origin. But it takes the Richard Donner idea of verisimilitude and plays it completely straight within the confines of having Robert Downey Jr. there, who is always one with a quick quip. I don't know that there's been any more perfect casting up to that point than Robert Downey Jr. and Tony Stark, other than Christopher Reeve as Superman. I think he just completely nailed it. With the caveat, once again, that he changed the character of Tony Stark to best suit and fit Robert Downey Jr. And as such, the character in the comics has changed to more reflect Robert Downey Jr., which I think is a little bit of a shame. I'll be honest with you. I don't know that the comics would have to do that. But certainly if they want people to buy the comic books that are coming at it from the cinema, then maybe that's a change that makes sense. But in every other respect, Iron Man is a triumph. Um, Ant-Man becomes Iron Man at the end with the fight between two people in suits just bashing the crap out of each other. Uh, But Iron Man pulls it off better. Um, and it's just a supremely entertaining launch pad for this whole thing that still holds up as a piece of, of entertainment today. The idea of Tony Stark and what Tony goes through and his growth as a character, not just through the three Iron Man movies, but through the the Avengers films and Captain America Civil War as well, has been one of the finest drawn arcs of the Marvel Universe. And we take it from that first point where we first meet him, and all that stuff in the cave at the beginning with Yinsen, um, where he honestly believes he's going to die, is all exceptionally well done. So Iron Man, number nine. Coming in at number eight, The Incredible Hulk. Wait a minute. I know what you're all thinking. Number eight? Isn't that like normally underneath Thor the Dark World? Well, yes, it is on other people's lists. But first and foremost, this isn't other people's lists. This is my list. And I happen to love The Incredible Hulk. I think it is the undiscovered gem of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now, you can argue, perhaps successfully, perhaps not, that some of the CG does not hold up anymore with the Hulk abomination fight at the end. But in every other respect, I think The Incredible Hulk is a much misunderstood gem in the crown of the cinematic universe. I think it's become a lot more important since Thunderbolt Ross returned to his role in Civil War. I think it's only overlooked because Ed Norton plays Bruce Banner instead of Mark Ruffalo. And I'll be honest, I think Ed Norton's actually better as Bruce Banner than Mark Ruffalo. Mark Ruffalo doesn't look skinny enough to be Bruce Banner. Bruce Banner was always drawn as quite this skinny, thin dude. Bill Bixby was skinny. Um, Ed Norton is skinny. I think the way that the film incorporates elements of the comic books is much better than it's given credit for. Let's not forget, this is a comic book movie. So, Doc Samson's the Betty Ross is the the origin sequence is handled magnificently just in the opening credits and then done and out the way. There's a lot of other movies that could have learned from that and then perhaps they didn't. Uh, I think there's some wonderful moments. The first 45 minutes of this is essentially a big budget TV episode from the Bill Bixby Lou Ferrigno series, which is just, you know, I'm a mark for because I love that series. I think throwing in the Lonely Man theme as a nod 
to that and Bixby and Ferrigno being in the film in various different guises. Bixby's on TV um, when Banner's learning Spanish and then Lou Ferrigno is a, a security guard later on. I think that The Incredible Hulk is very good at capturing the tortured duality of Bruce Banner, which is a very important part of the character. It doesn't hurt that the Hulk is one of my favourite characters. I think the the problem that you always have with the Hulk is the problem that the TV show has, is the problem that the comic books have, is that ultimately the character is trying to rid himself of the thing that you're there to watch. And I don't know that there's really a good way around that. I mean, Joss Whedon talks about when doing the Avengers. How do you get around that? The, 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 the central character is trying to prevent the thing that you're there to see. And that is an issue. But for the most part, I think this movie just does it absolutely brilliantly. I love that it follows the structure of the TV show with the Hulk out every half an hour. I think that it's just so good as a Hulk fan to have a good Hulk movie rather than that Ang Lee piece of tripe that came out a couple of years beforehand. And I think that's ultimately why this nestles so far on my list. One, I do think it's underrated. And I do think it's a better movie than other people give it credit for. And I do think it's the undiscovered gem of the cinematic universe. But also, as a Hulk fan, it's nice to have a good Hulk movie. Because without this, we don't have that. And the Hulk has been very good in his appearances in other people's films. But that's what they've been. Appearances in other people's films. And this was a good Bruce Banner story in a good Hulk movie. And I, personally, feel it's much underrated. Coming in at number seven, Iron Man 3. No film on this list jumped higher in its positioning than Iron Man 3. The, the top five, as we're about to get to them, changed around slightly. But Iron Man 3 went from... I, I would have, prior to this rewatch, I probably would have put Iron Man 3 down with Iron Man 2, Thor The Dark World, Doctor Strange, down there. <clears throat> Watching it for this rewatch, I was amazed by how good Iron Man 3 was. How good it was at wrapping up the arc that Tony Stark had been going through with his own movies and with the Avengers, its tackling of the subject of PTSD and depression, its tackling of Tony Stark's feelings that, well, what do I do now? What, what do you do when you've reached the top of the mountain? What do you do when you've no more worlds to conquer? I felt that um, Rhodey finally came into his own in this particular movie. I thought his relationship was well done. Um, I loved the, the arc of Pepper Potts, the, the role of women in the Marvel Universe is something that kind of gets dismissed because they haven't done a female-led movie. And I agree, that's an oversight. But it's not that the women characters haven't been important. Black Widow's character is incredibly important, ably portrayed by ScarJo. But what is often overlooked is Pepper Potts' story arc. Pepper goes from being the guy that gets Tony's tea and presses his shirts to running the company. At the end of Iron Man 3. She also, at the end of Iron Man 3, dons the Iron Man armour. Something that does seem to be a forgotten plot hole. At the end of this, she's got the extremist virus in her. That seems to be something that we've forgotten since. But I wouldn't mind seeing it, it pulled up on. Because, as much as I'm middling on Gwyneth Paltrow, I think her and Robert Downey Jr. have a fantastic relationship together. They bounce off each other really well. 
it was really nice to see a bigger part in this for John Favreau's Happy Hogan. And again, he'll come back in Spider-Man Homecoming with a really good part because he is another one of those supporting characters that really does set the idea that this is all happening in the same universe to the same bunch of people. And I think Favreau's having a ball playing Happy Hogan. And I think ultimately Iron Man 3, I don't think I'm the only one who has re-evaluated Iron Man 3 as we've done these cinematic rewatches, because I've seen Iron Man 3 rising in a lot of the Twitter lists and so on and so forth. But I honestly do think it's an incredibly important part of the of the overall. Um, I get that a lot of the disappointment with it upon its first release was, was in its handling of the Mandarin, or the Mandarin, as I was used to pronounce it as a kid. Um, I get that. Every one of us who is a comic book fan who loves a particular character have uh, that hill to die on where we don't like a specific change they've made to a character. It could be as simple as having a Batman who can't turn his head in the cowl. It can be the removal of Superman's trunks. For me, personally, it's it's any time that they put Gwen Stacy, Harry Osborn, Flash Thompson, Mary Jane Watson in high school with Peter Parker. I hate that with the fiery passion of a thousand burning suns. Largely because when I was reading the comics, I left high school. I left all those people behind. I went to college and I met a new bunch of people. That feels real to me. It feels realistic. And any time they don't do that in Spider-Man, I always feel like they've, they've cheated somehow that they're skipping straight to the good stuff and not actually earning it and building up all the characters for us to care about. With Iron Man, I get that some ardent Iron Man fans will have been upset by the Mandarin reveal. I'm not one of them. I'm sorry, because I genuinely thought that um, not Patrick Stewart did an excellent job as the Mandarin. Uh, I thought uh, he's not pa- not Patrick Stewart, is he? So Ben Kingsley. Uh, I thought he was, and his accent was brilliant. And you know, it's the only Marvel movie that's mentioned Croydon, wherever that is, um, and um, <laughs> Downton Abbey. You know, who'd have thought that Happy Hogan would be a fan of Downton Abbey? It's also got some just truly wonderful gags and moments in it. Fathers leave. That's what happens. No need to cry about it. All that is really good stuff. And I think. It's just a great film. You take Iron Man out of his suit and what have you got left? Which was a line in The Avengers and it's Tony asking himself that question. And it's supremely entertaining, very important to the overall story. Not one that you can skip. And as such, that's why it's risen to this particular point on my list. Coming at number six, another one that skipped over an awful lot of places in the list. And that is Age of Ultron. Now... At the top of the show, I said that there hasn't been a Marvel movie that has been as divisive as, say, The Last Jedi. If there was a Marvel movie that was as divisive as The Last Jedi, it would be this one. Age of Ultron really seems to have hit people at a time where they either A, wanted Joss Whedon to, to fail, or B, didn't want people to perhaps try something different with the superhero movies. Now, the first phase of the Marvel movies are all great, but they're all pretty safe in terms of being origin movies. They're not really taking any particular narrative risks that they have been in the middle of phase two and onto phase three. Age of Ultron was really the first time that they took a massive risk like that. Tony Stark is... Not the bad guy of Age of Ultron, but he's the reason that everything in Age of Ultron goes wrong. So essentially what you're doing there is you're taking the most popular character in your universe and you're showing him to be a flawed human being who gets people killed. 
because of his creation of Ultron. And that's a very during wrist take with the character. It feeds directly into his character arc in Iron Man 3. And it's very important to Tony's character because, again, that informs Civil War. So this is a very important film. Secondly, it moves along at an incredible clip does Age of Ultron. It's the only one of these movies I've watched twice in the past year and it's probably the one I would put on again and watch tomorrow because there is so much going on in it. So many things that are just imparted through lines of dialogue that if you're not paying attention, you can miss something important. So in that respect, it's one that really does stand up to repeated viewings. One of the things that people have complained about with Age of Ultron is the actual villain of Ultron. So he thinks that five minutes on the internet and he wants to wipe out the Earth. Well, yeah. Ultron's goal, as he perceives it, is Tony Stark's goal, which is peace on Earth. And after spending five minutes on Twitter and Instagram, Ultron decides that the best way to achieve peace on Earth is to wipe out humanity. It's hard to argue with the logic of that, because that would achieve peace on earth there are some wonderful bits with ultron when he gets thrown out of the ship by the hulk and just goes oh for god's sake the conversation with the vision is a key moment of this art but i was born yesterday and let's just talk about the vision for a minute paul bettany turning his forgotten performance as the voice of jarvis in the iron man films a role bettany himself didn't even remember doing initially it was two hours in a recording booth with John Favreau and he's managed to turn it into portraying a, an utterly wonderful version of the vision and you know when you've got a character in a Marvel movie who has a better Superman scene than pretty much anything that we'd seen in Superman movies of late this was before Justice League came out obviously then maybe you want to rethink your Superman movies because Paul Bettany is arguably the best example of a Superman we've seen on screen in many, many years. Scarlet Witch shows up in this film, beautifully portrayed by uh, little Mary, Mary Kate Olsen. Which Olsen? Whichever Olsen she is. I forget which Olsen she is. She's absolutely brilliant in this, and her relationship with Quicksilver, a Quicksilver who, in this film, is an actual character, as opposed to somebody who just shows up for a sight gag to free Magneto from a cell, even though that's the best scene in the film. Um, and a lot of people have complained about the ending, but th that's the whole point of the ending. The whole point of the film is Hawkeye has been set up as the one who's going to die. And then he doesn't. Quicksilver dies, saving Hawkeye's life. So Hawkeye would have died if Quicksilver hadn't been there. But there's just that other beautiful moment at the beginning of it where Hawkeye aims a, knocks a, a bow at him. Knocks an arrow at him. If he died, I, I don't know. Last I saw him, he was fine. Uh, all the character building they do with Hawkeye and his wife, uh, played by Linda Cardinelli. She has a great arc in this story. I love that they named the kid after Natasha. I think that's just beautiful. I don't agree with the big criticism of the film that Black Widow feels she's a monster because she can't have children. I didn't get that at all. I got that she feels like a monster because of what has been done to her that they have made her a monster because of all the killing the killing machine they've turned her into i think she has a lot more in common with the winter soldier than perhaps has been recognized in these films and i think it's something i would like to see explored in uh, the future scarlet scarlet witch scarlet johansson black widow movie that they've mooted at this point I would love to see her and Winter Soldier go off on a mission together, along with Hawkeye and Hawkeye and Winter Soldier bickering with each other in the same way that the Winter Soldier and, and 
and the Falcon bicker with each other in Civil War. I think all that would be brilliant. But ultimately, I think Civil War is very, very dense filmmaking with a really good story, some really good character development, and a really fast paced for such a long movie with a lot going on. And it's, it, you know, it's got Thingyo in it. It's got Claw in it. What's not to love about that? It's just such a great film. I, I love Age of Ultron, and I don't understand all of the hate that comes its way. I think it's one of the quintessential movies of the MCU. Coming in at number five as we enter the top five, Spider-Man Homecoming. This was one, another one that rose exponentially on the list upon the rewatch. Upon first blush, uh, I enjoyed it, don't get me wrong. I thought that had a lot of entertainment to it. I think Tom Holland is probably the best live-action Spider-Man that we've had so far. I love that he's very young. To me, that is Spider-Man. A lot of people argue, well, why can't he be 20-something? If he's 20-something, he's just the Flash. There's nothing unique about him. If he's no, if he's a teenager, he's allowed to make mistakes. Now, I'm not averse to them growing him, aging him, changing him as we go along, but I always think that he needs to start off in high school. The things that bugged me about the film were, one, he's got somebody to talk to in the character of Ned Leeds, which apparently is ripped off a character called Ganke from the Miles Morales Spider-Man comic books, which I've never read, so I wasn't aware of that. But I prefer... Peter Parker to have nobody to talk to because it plays into his isolation and his feelings of being dejected and being alone. I think that's I think that's much better. I didn't have a problem with him using Tony Stark as a surrogate father figure. I mean, just going off this movie, the idea is that Uncle Ben has not been dead long. It's still a relatively recent wound to him and May, although it's never actually mentioned. And that was one misstep I really didn't like. I really think that they should have had a mention of Uncle Ben and a picture of him. There isn't even a picture of him in the apartment, which I think was a misstep. But it's clearly there. It's clearly there as backstory. So him latching onto Tony as a father figure, I didn't mind at all because he's, it made sense within the universe that this story of Spider-Man is being told. I like that he frequently makes mistakes, but he's an incredibly good-hearted kid. I like that, you know, a lot of what he's made, a lot of the tech that he's made is his own, which is something that the Raimi films are like, oh, well, we can accept that he can make a $10,000 suit, but we can't accept that he can make his web shooters. So that was ridiculous. Um... And altogether, it just works as a solely entertaining piece of Marvel Cinematic Universe. I didn't understand why they made Zendana. Is that her name? Zendana? I didn't understand why they made her Murray, or whatever her name is, but people call me MJ. They should have just called her Murray Jane Watson and be done with it. They didn't need to change her name. Zendaya, thank you very much. And you just told me what her real name is. Uh, they should have just made her Murray Jane Watson from the beginning. So, you know, it, she's a little bit more bookwormish than the Murray Jane of the comic books. But what they could establish is that away from school, she's a bit of a party animal. Maybe that's something that we could learn about her in the next movie. Um, everything else, all the other changes they made, didn't overly bother me. It has, as Michael Bailey pointed out, a wonderful Spider-Man moment of his girlfriend is his... his the, his father of a, his girlfriend is the villain. That is just so quintessentially Spider-Man. It's just a beautiful moment. Um, a lot of people have complained about the ending, that he crashed the plane on a beach that could have had people on it. Well, I read that as him deliberately trying to get that plane away from a populated area. I read that as he aimed it towards the beach, knowing that it wouldn't be populated. But again, maybe I misread the scene, but that was my interpretation of it. He was trying to get it away from crashing into midtown Manhattan. 
Uh, I thought Michael Keaton's performance was sublime especially from the moment that he recognised that Spider-Man is Peter Parker. I love the ending where he doesn't reveal that he knows who he is as a favour that, you know, he saved a, he still saved his daughter. That that was that was a nice touch. Happy Hogan's John Favreau is brilliant throughout this movie. I could have done without as much Tony Stark as we had, but he, he wasn't in enough of it to derail it as a Spider-Man movie. So that was all perfectly acceptable and I enjoyed it. But ultimately, I do think it is my favourite of the Spider-Man movies. Uh, it differentiates from the source material in no more of a dramatic fashion than the other ones did. But it, it's firmly planted in the cinematic universe in a way that makes sense. And I'm very much looking forward to what Tom Holland does next to Spider-Man, as long as they don't keep that Iron Spider suit from the uh, Infinity War trailer, which I'm just not a fan of. Coming in at number four, Captain America Civil War. The Captain America movies and the Avengers movies and the Iron Man movies essentially were the beating heart of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's the major events happen in those movies. Civil War is no less important for being a big story in Avengers 2.5 or whatever people want to call it. It's still at its heart a Captain America story. And we can debate the, the value of Captain America and Tony Stark, who's right, who's wrong. I think they both have viewpoints that are put forward quite well in the film, and I think they both are blinded by their own viewpoints throughout the film. So there are moments where both of them are wrong and both of them are right. I think it's an extraordinarily well put together film. Exceptionally well written, performed. Chris Evans, the beating heart of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. For me, the single best cast actor in any of this. You know, Captain America is a, is a character that could have been difficult to pull off. Uh, and like Christopher Reeve before him, Chris Evans just nails it. Nails the tone, nails the action, names everything. Um, he's absolutely brilliant here. But you get to see two sides of Captain America in these two back-to-back -back movies. The Captain America that everybody thinks of, the staunch guy, the, you know, eat your greens and all that. You see him in Homecoming through a series of videos that Peter is forced to watch at school. Um, oh, as an aside, Spider-Man Homecoming has the single best end credits moment of any of the movies. That bit where Captain America's talking about patience and rewarding patience. The amount of people who bitched about that on Twitter because they either didn't get it or did get it but were pissed off that's what they'd waited for was absolutely hysterical. And that's worth the price of admission alone. But in Civil War, we see a very conflicted Captain America who doesn't perhaps make the right choices just as Tony Stark doesn't make the right choices in places. And it's a wonderful movie for provoking debate. I don't want to invoke the spectre of Batman versus Superman because it never ends well. But I think with Civil War and Batman versus Superman, you've got two films tackling the same subject matter within the same genre, but one of them succeeds and one of them doesn't. I mean, it's personal preference, really. But I think Civil War is the one that succeeds. And I think it succeeds admirably. It's also notable for being the film where the bad guy wins. The bad guy gets exactly what he wants out of this situation. You know, he destroys the Avengers. That's what he was looking for. That's what he wanted. Absolutely. And his plot, his plot actually makes sense when you sit and follow it. I think that's where Civil War scores. I think he's an absolutely brilliant bad guy. 
I really do. I really think this this film works on every conceivable level, and it's supremely entertaining at the same time. It's just such a good film, and it ends in a place like it's the Empire Strikes Back of the Marvel Cinematic Universe in that it ends at a place that is everything's in disarray, and it's where do we go from here? And I think that's brilliant as well because by this point in the cinematic universe, they knew that they could do stuff like that. They could take storytelling risks like that and get away with it because the audience is with them at this point. The audience, we don't want them to fail unless you're James Cameron. So it was it was quite a brave storytelling decision. Absolutely brilliant stuff. Coming in at number three is Captain America, The Winter Soldier. The Winter Soldier, to me, showed us what the Marvel Universe could be. Like I said, the first phase... All very good films, all very entertaining films, but quite safe origin-style stories. Nothing too risky in the storytelling. Winter Soldier showed us that everything was on the table. There wasn't anything that they weren't willing to risk or do in the nature of furthering the story. So in Winter Soldier, they actually bring down S.H.I.E.L.D. They actually destroy S.H.I.E.L.D. Nick Fury ends up going on the run. Scarlet Scarlet Witch again, Scarlet Johansson. The Black Widow ends up releasing information out onto the streets or onto the internet, which ultimately seeds into Civil War. Uh, It's gone. S.H.I.E.L.D. is gone at the end of this movie. That's a big risk to take. You've also got the relationship between Cap and Bucky, which a lot of people don't buy. But I do. I'm, I'm, I'm a mark for the Cat Bucky thing because I think in the first Avenger, the couple of scenes that they do have together really does sell how, what good friends they are. And I, it's, I think it's another one of those things where the building blocks over a certain amount of films are helping us believe that this is a cohesive universe. The Winter Soldier also has some of the finest action scenes of any of the Marvel movies. The scene in the elevator where Cap says, before we start, is there anyone who wants to get off? It's just absolutely magnificent. The destruction of all the helicarriers is all absolutely wonderfully done. The opening sequence with um, the the Leaper is is absolutely great. Cap and and, um, Black Widow on the run is brilliantly fun where they have that little heart-to-heart in the car. Beautiful little character moment. All absolutely brilliant stuff the only problem i have with this is the guy who plays crossbones uh frank grillo should really have been the punisher i personally think he's much better casting for the punisher than uh, shane from the walking dead but that's just me that's just my personal opinion and he got to play the punisher in the purge films so if you want to see frank grillo playing the punisher Feel free to go and watch The Purge. Well, you should watch The Purge anyway, because they're great horror movies. But Civil well, Winter Soldier sorry, really did kick off this idea that Marvel were willing to do different things narratively with those stories and not just churn out the same film every time. They haven't always succeeded. Like I say, Ant-Man borrowed heavily from Iron Man. Doctor Strange had moments where it just felt like a rote origin story. But for the most part, they have managed to build and build and build and do something interesting with each of their movies. Coming in at number two, The Avengers. Nobody would have believed that it could be done. That you could introduce a bunch of Marvel heavy hitters, who were, let's be honest, only heavy hitters in the comics. You know, the general public didn't know about Iron Man or Captain America or Thor or Scarlet Black Widow or Hawkeye or anything like that. And to bring all these together into The Avengers shouldn't have worked. And yet it did. And on a purely 
entertainment value, purely on the level of, I can't believe we saw this in my lifetime, purely on a, holy shit, that's good level, the Avengers still rocks the world. The fact that they managed to bring them all in, to do it in such a way that it felt like a, a wonderful moment of seeing all these characters on screen at the same time, it was oh, it made me feel six years old. And that is something that I will always give a huge pass to. Something that succeeds in making me feel six again. Makes me have that same passion, that same exuberance for the project that I had when I was reading the comics when I was 10, 12 years of age. That's what the Avengers gave me. Now, there is an argument to be say that the Coulson's death being undercut by the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. series. That's a valid argument, but if you just don't watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. like I don't, it doesn't really matter. Um, there is an argument to made that there isn't a lot of character depth or development in the Avengers, and that is a valid criticism. But that's not what we wanted at the end of Phase 1. We wanted all of these characters to come together, to fight a threat that only they could deal with together, and to do it with style and panache. And this movie pulls that off brilliantly. Loki is a brilliant bad guy. I just love the bit in the middle of German with the old guy who calls him out saying there are always men like you. I just love and adore that bit. I love Captain America taking him out. I love the Thor Hulk fight. I love the Iron Man Thor fight. I love the fact that Tony Stark's just an utter wanker throughout this entire movie to everybody. He's just a twat as he tries to exert his alpha maleness in front of a bunch of people who have nothing to prove in that regard, Steve Rogers and Thor, and to just think the guy's a tit of the highest order. I think um, Maria Hill is a wonderful addition to the cast, stably portrayed by uh, Robin from How I Met Your Mother. I think that Scar Jo is brilliant in, in, in The Avengers. I think she's absolutely fantastic. I think there isn't a weak link in the film. There is not a weak link in the chain of the movie. From the, the setup, the script, the store, the direction, I think The Avengers is the quintessential comic book superhero movie probably the best of that kind since the superman series and, and maybe batman by tim burton but even that didn't really want to embrace its comic book roots because tim burton was adamant that he doesn't read comics i'm not convinced tim burton reads much of anything other than you know adam's family strips but the avengers just nails it just succeeds in every single level which means that there's only one left to be number one and number one for me is Captain America, the first Avenger. The best, in my opinion. All right, maybe I should rephrase that. My favourite superhero movie since Superman the movie in 1978. Buy me a drink and catch me on a good day, and I'll tell you why it's better than Superman. In fact, fuck it, I'll tell you that now. It's better than Superman because the script holds up better. There isn't as many holes in Captain America the First Avenger as there are in Superman. There's a lot of things we'll turn a blind eye to in Superman just because of our nostalgic love for it. And let's be honest, we all love it. Everybody loves it. Everyone's listening to this loves Superman the movie. But Captain America is just... They do exactly the same thing. They take a character who could be corny, who could be a little difficult to portray in modern day, and they just nail it. And a lot of that is down to Chris Evans, who I think is the beating heart of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That guy is a wonderful actor. I really do. If you've only ever seen him as Captain America, watch him in some of his other things. The guy is an actor. 
He's not like Robert Downey Jr. He doesn't just play the same guy in everything. He plays different parts. The Robert, the, the Chris Evans here, he's not the Chris Evans of the Fantastic Four films. He's not the Chris Evans of the Losers. He's not the Chris Evans of... Um, Sunshine is not the Chris Evans of that little indie film that he directed. That's actually a really sweet little love story where he meets um, Alice Eve in the middle of New York and they just, they're just two strangers who bump into each other one night who need each other at that point. That's a lovely little film if you're into low-budget rom-coms. It's not even a comedy in many ways. Low-budget romantic dramas. Um, he's just a really great actor. And I think of all the characters and actors that may go away after Infinity War, he's the one that you'll miss the most even though you, you you probably take him fully for granted. I'm pretty, pretty sure that most people take him for granted. But Captain America works in other ways as well. It is a perfect adaptation of a comic book. Right down from the starting off in World War II, and it's it's not a realistic World War II, but I don't care about a realistic World War II in a Captain America movie. He is the one character I will give a pass to in World War II dramas. I've said this before. To me, World War II isn't cigar-chomping um, sergeants with eye patches spouting off, you know, patriotic one-liners about killing the Krauts and never coming back with a scratch on them. All just ridiculous gung-ho stuff. That's not the World War II I grew up learning about. I grew up with grandparents who were raised in World War II. World War II was real people having their real houses bombed, having their real places of work destroyed, losing real people who lived in their community to a relentless barrage. And as such, I'm not a big fan of costumed heroes in World War II. Um, it's one of those things I agree with Garth Ennis about, that you, I can read them and like them, like the Invaders. I, I quite like the Invaders, although I've never got into the Justice Society. I quite like the Invaders, but for the most part, the only one I'll give a pass to is Captain America. And the reason is because Captain America was fighting for everybody in World War II. And it was a symbol and a propaganda, and there's nothing wrong with that in a time like that in a time of war and this film nails that perfectly it nails the fact that cap is created as a propaganda machine it nails the fact that captain america is created to build up um the people at home to give them something to believe in in this incredibly bleak time and chris evans just nails that entire thing of of stepping away from being a propaganda machine and an icon and becoming a real person who wants to fight for what's right and it's just glorious in every single way but also like superman this has just such a magnificent supporting cast probably the best supporting cast of any of the Marvel movies. Every single one of the Howling Commandos is wonderful. Not least Dum Dum Dugan, played by the guy who plays Damien Dark in Legends of Tomorrow, actor Neil McDonough, who was, you know, had his debut in Star Trek um, First Contact and has been on to be in Justified, where he was great, and is now in, in like I said, Legends of Tomorrow and the Arrowverse as Damien Dark. He is he's absolutely brilliant as Dum Dum Dugan. I like all of the Howling Commandos. Perhaps they're not given the depth or the time to be explored as much as the, the similar characters in Wonder Woman, but we have seen the Howling Commandos in other stuff which has given them a little bit more background and a bit more depth, which which I quite appreciate. You know, you've got Stanley Tucci as Erskine, the guy who invents 
poppy serum that turns Steve Rogers into Captain America, just absolutely nailing that part. You know, Stanley Tucci has never been bad in anything. You know, Stanley Tucci being in something means that there's going to be at least a great performance in that movie. But again, Stanley Tucci is a great actor. If you've seen him in, um, oh God, the Peter Jackson thing about the the child who goes missing, I can't remember the name of it at the minute, it's not Gone Girl. Um, The Lovely Bones, he's beautifully chilling in the lovely bones and then here he's avuncular and friendly and 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 the father figure to steve rogers the other father figure to steve rogers the most stern one tommy lee jones absolutely brilliant in this um Haley atwell who i've not mentioned yet who plays peggy carter has talked about how tommy lee jones has this this reputation of being a bit of a curmudgeon a bit grumpy she said she actually found him hysterically funny because of that and he brings that to the role and it's such a shame we, we can't see him again because he's obviously long dead um michael brandon is in this film um a lot of british actors in this movie because it was shot in britain if you look carefully you'll see natalie dormer as the guy as the girl who tries to seduce captain america blink and you'll miss her and jenna coleman's there as bucky's date to the the expo at the beginning of the film it, it's all just uh Arm- richard armitage is the guy who shoots erskine um and, but we've not even mentioned as well that the villain in this film the villain in this film is the red skull wonderfully portrayed by hugo weaving who apparently is another one of those actors who did not have a good time on on this film which is a shame. You wouldn't know it from his performance, which I think is utterly, utterly brilliant. And if if he's not a fan, then I hope that they would bring back the Red Skull at some point. Maybe just portray him as a different actor, bring back the second Red Skull or whatever. You know, Toby Jones is in this movie. Toby Jones is a brilliant actor. Um, he's absolutely fantastic here. As, as, Armin, as Arnim Zola, sorry. Always good to see Toby Jones in anything. And I... I I think this is the quintessential comic book movie. I I, I don't want to be pissy, but, you know, I, I do wonder if you don't like this one, do you really like comic books? Do you really like superhero comic books? People complain about the ending being a bit rushed. Well, that's perfect for the era. How many comics have you read where Stan Lee just rushed the ending? But then when he, he he's revived outside of of the ice at the end and just i had a date and the whole do you fondue and this is before we even mention the luminescence that is Haley atwell as peggy carter who is just so good in this film it's no wonder that of all of the characters from the marvel cinematic universe Haley atwell's peggy carter is the one who has made more cameos anywhere else and has got her own series that only lasted two seasons, unfortunately. The first season of which was absolutely the best thing Marvel have done on television, followed up only by Netflix's Daredevil. Um, She's just utterly magnificent. People still want to see more of Peggy Carter. And she's the only one who's had a full story arc. We know how she lived, how she died. We know all of that stuff. Um, It's just, for me, it is the quintessential comic book superhero movie. And certainly the best one since Superman the movie in 1978. Well, that was my list. Uh, As I say, it's my list, not your list. Um, Your list will probably be different to mine. Um, You can email me in and and argue with me if you want to on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. Or you can let me know what, what... what, what would be in your list? Where would you disagree? Where would you agree? I can be emailed, uh, as I just said, on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. Feel free to drop me a line and uh, we'll just have a break. And then I've only got a couple more minutes before I have to go out, but we'll, we'll squeeze in an email. Mm-hmm. 
In late 1984, Marvel's direct sales manager sat in a crowded meeting of comic retailers. Let's be honest, Secret Wars was crap, right? But did it sell? The room exploded with applause. Well, get ready for Secret Wars Series 2. Beginning in 2018, Pulp to Pixel's Marvel superhero Secret Wars and Beyond will do the unthinkable Secret Wars 2. We'll take a detailed look at the event, the tie-ins, the new characters, and we will attempt to answer one of the largest questions in the history of the Marvel Universe. What the heck was Jim Shooter thinking? No, no, seriously, what was Jim Shooter thinking? Well, you can find out at the Pulp to Pixel podcast network, where you can subscribe to all of our amazing shows, or just to Secret Wars and Beyond itself, as it is now in its own omnipotent feed. Secret Wars 2 and Beyond, a Pulp to Pixel podcast production. You'll believe an omnipotent being can use the restroom. Okay, we'll we'll squeeze in some quick emails or two before I have to leave. It is um, approaching ten past six here, and I have to go out and pick my wife up from work at half past. So we'll just do a couple of emails. Our first email tonight is from Chris Franklin, who is emailed saying, Hello, Andy. I greatly enjoyed your rundown on the recent Masterworks purchase. I actually began buying these Spider comics around this era, as I specifically recalled a splash with Peter coming home to find Betty in his apartment. Since I couldn't read it back then, I just looked at the cool pictures for the most part so I didn't comprehend the rather tawdry affair that was about to ensue. Other than a few issues here and there, I haven't gone back and reread this run, but I've often heard it lauded, particularly that infamous issue 200, which I unfortunately, unfortunately missed on the stands. Interesting to hear that it doesn't hold up to snuff. Since you present your case so well, and I value your opinion, I can definitely see the problems as you've pointed them out. I did dig Pollard's Ditko-esque Spider-Man, which I probably encountered before I saw Ditko. Great episode, as always, Chris. Well, thank you, Chris. You can hear Chris. Chris has just bought back Batman Nightcast, the finest Batman podcast on the internet that isn't hosted by myself and Michael Bailey. And it's always lovely to hear from Chris. Uh, Jason Trenner has emailed in. Oh yeah, Chris does that with Ryan Daly, who's, who's just popped out of Sprog. So congratulations to Ryan and his missus for doing that. I believe his wife's the same has the same name as my missus. Um, um, but Batman Nightcast is is currently covering Batman Year Two, which makes for interesting listening. Jason Trenner has emailed in uh, the Wolf and Spider-Man run, which didn't have a man-wolf. Hey, Andy, it was interesting to hear you cover the entire Marvel, Marvel Wolf and sorry, Amazing Spider-Man run, a run that seemed to have some interesting ideas and some not-so-interesting ones. That That's putting it mildly, young Jason. Uh, I don't think this is your thing, but the Marvel Masterworks I would love to see you cover is what the X-Men were doing between the book going into reprints and the all-new, all-different X-Men era. Um... Yeah, see, that's not likely because I'm just not that big of a fan of the X-Men. I think when you go back and reread the early Marvel stuff, one of the things that stands out is Stan. Now, Stan clearly enjoyed scripting and working with Ditko and Kirby. And I think you could particularly get that enjoyment from Stan and Jack on Thor, the Fantastic Four, and working on Spider-Man, whether it be with Ditko or Ramit. I think those characters he very much enjoyed writing. I think there are other characters, like the X-Men, where Stan just didn't really care, and his heart wasn't in it, and he didn't know what to do. And I think the early X-Men issues are just dire. And I don't think there's a lot going on in the X-Men until they become all new, all different. Um, and that kind of goes to the stuff that was happening in between. X-Men The Hidden Years was by John Byrne, who was, for a long time, one of my favourite comic book creators. And I just found it boring as hell. Even he couldn't make the X-Men of that era interesting to me. 
So it's unlikely that I will be covering any X-Men masterworks. I do apologise, but you know, I don't I don't want to go into something thinking this is boring and I don't want to do it. So it's not likely that uh, I'll be covering that. Daniel Doherty has emailed in again. Good evening, 007. I mean, Andy. Uh, his heading is the name's Leyland. Andrew Leyland. As you can probably tell from my email, I've been on a bit of a James Bond kick recently. During that time, I listened to the two 007-centric Two True Freak specials that you participated in, Stirred Not Shaken and Long Play number 18, 53 Years of James Bond Music. Even though they're not necessarily related to the Palace of Glittering Delights, I wanted to say I thought these two episodes were absolutely smashing. Thank you very much, Dan. I very much enjoyed doing both of those. Um, we did those. Uh, long play was with Paul Spataro and Luke Giaconetti. I almost said Jason Giaconetti for a second. There. And that was immense fun to talk through the, the Bond themes with those guys. And then the Two True Freak special, we covered all the Sean Connery, Roger Moore episodes. Um, episodes, films, with the aforementioned August Gentleman and Scott Gardner. We really need to get the band back together and cover the others. I mean, even if we only do like one for Timothy Dalton one for Pierce Brosnan and then one for Daniel Craig rather than sit down and cover all of them again because I think that episode ended up being about three hours long but we really do need to cover that and finish the series and maybe re-release the first one so that a lot more people know about it because um, I edited that one and I really am proud of it it's one of my proudest editing jobs I think I've ever done on a podcast um, Such such good fun talking about James Bond Great discussions among fellow podcasters, each bringing their own unique perspective on what makes Agent 007 so entertaining for over 50 years. Cheers to you, Paul, Scott, and Luke. Sincerely, Dan Doherty. Well, thank you very much, Dan. I'm glad you discovered them. One of the nice things about uh, podcasting like that is they are out there for you to listen to. Uh, and I very much hope that um, uh, other people will go out and, and have a look at them. It's Two True Freaks special on the James Bond movies and long play number 18 about the James Bond music. Very much hope you enjoy that. Um, as I said, uh, I've got to go now. Time is against me. Uh, I've got another email here from Olivia Villar and another one from Chris Franklin, but unfortunately I do not have time to read them now. I've got to swoop off and pick my wife up from work. As ever, the Palace of Glittering Delights is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcasting network. You're home for some truly stunning podcasty type shows. Go and check them out, but always check mine out first. Because I like my downloads being higher than everybody else's. Um, uh, again, as I always say, if you want to buy something from Amazon, the Two True Freaks page, twotruefreaks.com, has a link that you can click on. And if you buy your shit from Amazon, we get a kickback. Helps us keep the lights on because I ain't paying to do this. You can pay me to do it if you want to, but I'm not paying to do it. So that's lovely if you could continue to support us in that way. Hope you enjoyed this impromptu, off-the-cuff, unscripted episode. And I will see you next time with whatever takes my eye. Maybe I'll talk about Infinity War because it'll be out by then. Best wishes. Everything's going to be okay. And I'll see you real soon.